Gee, you're beautiful to see Say you ought to be in pictures Oh, what a hit you would be Your voice would thrill the nation Your looks would be adored You'd be a big sensation With wealth and fame, your reward Celebrity is the 28th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1998. Kenneth Branagh stars as Lee Simon, a journalist with aspirations of higher writing and a better life. He has just split from his wife Robin, played by Judy Davis. The two go on separate searches for happiness through fame. Lee by hanging around it, and Robin by accidentally becoming it. Coming straight after deconstructing Harry, Celebrity is another harsh, angry film, shot in stark black and white and with a biting, sour message. It is one of Alan's biggest casts and a large, sprawling story. There's a lot of film here to discuss. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast by me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 13, we look at 1998's Celebrity, how it was conceived, how it was made, and just how big it is. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first and then come back. Hey, look, I never believed what Andy Warhol said about everybody being famous for 15 minutes. I mean, it sounds great, but it's not true. Almost nobody will ever be famous for even one minute, so enjoy it. Okay. Celebrity was released in 1998, several years after Woody Allen found himself on the front page of pretty much every newspaper in the world when he split from Mia Farrow. Not that he wasn't famous before, but now he was famous for his private life. It was just the latest episode after 40 odd years of fame. And you have to imagine that after being put through the ringer by the culture of celebrity, Alan had some level of revenge on his mind when he wrote this film. But Alan's always had an axe to grind when it comes to celebrity. He had looked at his own relationship with fame and art in Stardust Memories. But this was different. This was less personal. He wanted to make a film that chewed on fame and how it affects people and what it says about us as a society. The structure of the story he would come up with relied on a couple of old tricks that Alan had used before and would again. He would have two leads so he could attack the themes from two different angles and cut back and forth to avoid getting boring. See Crimes and Misdemeanors or Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And he would add episodic adventures that these characters would explore and bounce off different ideas. The spine he settled on to hold the story together were the characters of Lee Simon, played by Kenneth Branagh, and Robin Simon, played by Judy Davis. The couple break up and both go on separate adventures in their new single lives. So that's the spine, and Alan proceeded to build a large blue whale around that spine. There's no getting around it. Celebrity is a huge, sprawling film. It smashes Radio Day's 150 speaking parts with 250 speaking parts. There are lots of outdoor and location shots. There's heaps of crowd scenes. There are dozens of characters that pass through who deliver just one line. This is a mad array, a kaleidoscopic madness. And yet, it's in black and white. But we'll come to the black and white. More than a few people pointed out that La Dolce Vita was a template for this film. La Dolce Vita is a 1960 Federico Fellini film, and it certainly sets the template. Fellini's film is about a gossip magazine journalist who is a ladies' man, and we follow his episodic adventures in the celebrity world of 60s Rome. Alan had riffed off Fellini premises before, and Alan just loves that Italian director. Eight and a half for Stardust Memories, Amacor for Radio Days, Juliet of the Spirits is essentially Alice, and there's less obvious nods to Fellini throughout his filmography, like The Purple Rose of Cairo, Sweet and Lowdown, and of course, To Rome with Love. And so he took Fellini's starting point and wrote all new stories and scenes. 
The Dolce Vita, the phrase, means the sweet life. And Fellini's film sees his gossip mag hero go on a journey to find a vapid kind of happiness through Roman high society. That film is one of the greatest of all time, and is at once personal, yet has more to say about the human existence. Alan, on the other hand, has kind of less to say about the personal, and uses more words to say it. Alan focuses on the fame aspect, and he makes his point bluntly at times. The Dolce Vita is the better film, but premise aside, they are very different films with very different things to say. So back to Lee and Robin, the two sides of the film. Alan sticks to pretty much standard screenwriting conventions when they interact. They have a beginning, middle and end. The beginning is when we see their breakup pretty early on in the film and it's the inciting incident that sets both of them on their path when they break up in Central Park. Lee longs for a new life. In a way, he's like a person who spent too much time on Instagram, seeing how others lived and wants to be a part of it. Robin, who was happy with her lot, goes to seek help and stumbles onto another path. Their breakup scene is incredible. We'll talk about the acting a little bit later, but here are Branner and Davis, two incredible actors, acting the hell out of the scene in one take, staying active and kinetic around the set the whole time. And the writing is incredible. In the middle of it, Robin tells Lee to be honest. She can handle it. We know she can't. We know she's going to get angry. It's been set up in the most obvious way. Yet the two of them give a great pause before the punchline. Branagh underplays his line. And then it's all Judy. We know what's coming and usually when you know the joke, it makes it less funny. Instead, she manages to nail the joke you expected in the middle of a very complicated scene. Who else? Nobody else! I... Okay, Lee, tell me. Now that we're clearing the air, I won't get angry. Lee, come on. Let's just, let's just clear the air. I won't get angry. Aren't you cold? We're clearing the air. I'm not going to get angry. Sheila. Sheila? Sheila? Oh, you low-life motherfucker! That's why dad can't talk to you. We next see the pair together in pretty much the middle of the film. In any film school screenwriting course, they tell you that the midpoint is the low point for our characters. It's where they learn the hard truth or their task gets harder. It's Neo meeting the Oracle and finding out he's not the one in the Matrix or it's Obi-Wan dying in Star Wars. It's when Sonny is killed in The Godfather and the Avengers turning on each other in The Helicarrier. Here, Alan makes Lee and Robbins each other's midpoint when they meet at a screening. Robin is a mess, hiding from Lee, and Lee is a fraud. Neither are happy, and they clash. Did you not say Sheila was a Vosh Hollandaise? Well, didn't you? <laughs> Am I lying? <laughs> it's, you know, you're a sick woman. You're a sick woman, that's what you are. Yeah, okay. They only interact one more time, right at the end of the film. By now, the tables have turned. Robin has the celebrity that Lee craves so much. Lee is left hanging on, looking blankly as he watches a screen that shows the word help. It's as brutal an ending that Alan has ever created, and the only answer that Lee gets is that it's luck. We compare Lee to Robin and vice versa throughout the film, and Robin wins. You're, you're so radiant. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's luck, Lee. Really? No matter what the, the shrinks or the pundits or the self-help books tell you, when it comes to love, it's luck. Both Lee and Robin have those interactions, but they also have their separate adventures. These episodes are often just standalones. In a couple of them, you could rip them out of the film and it wouldn't change much. 
They start and resolve before the next one begins. Because of this, neither Lee nor Robin are Woody Allen's best characters. They are sometimes vessels for another story. We don't learn anything about Robin at the Plastic Surgeons, and Lee is just along for the ride with superstar Brandon Darrow, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. They are sometimes reduced to observers in their own stories. Most of Lee's journey is him being overwhelmed by Darrow or by the supermodel played by Charlize Theron, and even Nicole Oliver played by Melanie Griffith. He tries to climb the ladder but fails to get someone to be interested in his script. These adventures are big and kind of exciting, but they aren't terribly funny. Throughout it, Alan is taking stabs at celebrity culture. Take the supermodel stuff. They go from cool crowd to cool crowd, allowing Alan to make cracks at the cool crowd. The satire is not massively sophisticated. Alan makes the same points again and again. Everyone is shallow and Lee is a fool for wanting any part of it. For me, the best Lee sequences come when Alan is trying to make a point about something other than fame. Take the high school reunion sequence. Lee attends his very average high school reunion and it gives Alan an opportunity to talk about getting old and the compromises of a generation. Alan is brutal about Lee's aging classmates, all whilst a former student sings The Impossible Dream, a late 60s hit song that was kind of summing up the hippie dream. All it does for Lee is make him realise that his life is empty. It's a big moment for Lee, and it's when he decides to leave his wife. Alan could have made Lee's reasons more superficial, like he just wanted some cheap fame and loose women. But Lee's reasons are deeper than that. It doesn't make him a better person, but Alan makes some effort to show you where he's coming from. He doesn't want to end up one of his loser classmates, and can you blame him? All these dentists and veterinarians and antique dealers, cap teeth and bald heads, gray hairs coming in. Sam Jablin has that rug on, my God, it looks like it fell on his head from a window and nobody told him. Some dead already, Annette D'Angelo, breasts I once caressed lying cold in the ground. God, I wanted to sleep with Polly Weiss. Now she's turned into her mother. And Freddie Kaplan's my age, he could easily be my father's pinochle partner. I'm fucking proof rock. I gotta change my life before it's too late. Lee doesn't get a happy ending. He's unable to finish his book. He gets lost in the whirlwind of fame, but doesn't find love or satisfaction. The through line in his story is Nola, played by Winona Ryder. We meet Lee when he meets her. They court and he wins her over in a scene that seems like Lee's romantic fantasy. This huge rush of strings and a kiss under the streetlight. But soon the relationship turns real and they are deciding on pasta for dinner. Lee's journey ends in quiet disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just I give up. I, so... So what do you want for dinner? What should I, what should I buy? Spaghetti. You know, I was going to ask you to marry me. No, penne with marinara. Robin's adventures are more comical and farcical. She meets a man, Tony, played by Joe Mantegna. He's a stand-up guy, and he's kind of the only guy in the film who has worked things out. He knows how to make the celebrity life work for him, and over the course of the film, he shows Robin how it's done. Robin sometimes feels like she's in a different film from Lee. Her adventures with plastic surgeons and learning how to give blowjobs are pretty broad comedy. They are fine, they are funny, but not much else. It lacks the depth of Lee's side of the story. The heart of Robin's story is her acceptance of happiness and letting go of the guilt that comes with it. She is, in a lot of ways, the real Woody Allen surrogate here. She expresses her views that Allen has said all the time about his own career. That he was lucky, he got a break, and he is guilty about it, but has to learn how to accept it and admit that his life is more comfortable than most. 
That Robin story and her rags-to-riches career is a little like Alan's own. And like Alan at this time, she lucked into finding a lovely life partner. Robin gets the happy ending, but it's just luck. How did I manage to swing this? Last year I was, I was teaching English, performing a serious function. And suddenly, through a whirlwind series of events, I've become the kind of woman I've always hated. But I'm happier. Throughout the screenplay, there are wonderful ideas. I love how Lee is writing a book on the topic of celebrity. Alan's had so many characters who are writers, but he really makes it part of the story here. That book Lee is working on is subtext about the themes of this film, but it also says something about Lee as a person, and is also used as a plot point when Bonnie throws it into the river. Theme, character and plot, with just one device. Just lovely. What happened to that book you were toying with? Oh, it, it, it just kind of floated away. Uh, I thought about it just the other day. Really? You know. A culture that took a wrong turn somewhere. Saw an individual who can't find himself. That was, that was it. That was my well, book. Well, because be- There's a lot of symbolism. The sky-written word of help is certainly memorable. And I love how the removalists are trying to move boxes in as Bonnie and Lee are breaking up. A little bit of extra comic farce on top of a serious, intense scene. Alan's writing is just top-notch, finding the voice of 200-plus characters from all walks of life. There's energy on every page. And then there's a lovely scene where Lee and Nola talk over their friends at Elaine's. It comes at a point in the film when we need something to take us to the ending. Nola and David arrive and Lee is paused for about 15 seconds and the film takes almost a break. Then Lee talks over the friends and at Nola. Everyone else is still speaking and they have their own private conversation amongst the noise, but they do break back and forth. The sound design is incredible. The camera work follows faces around and helps to make sense of the dialogue. Two conversations happen at once and it's a fine balancing act between good actors, a very well written script and technical work to make it all make sense. And it's one long and broken take. It's just another incredible bit of screenwriting matched with great filmmaking. I'm good. I've been, I finished a very long article. I was working on it for like five months and then uh, we've been actually vacationing a little bit. Oh goodness. Good. Yes, yes. We went to California. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read uh, Sid's book? How have you yeah, been? Good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Good. 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 Oh, I, I didn't I thought so too. How's your acting? What career? did you read it? Oh, yes, slow but breathing. Excellent. You were still used to working at Chipmunks. You remember? Which one? What was the uh, spy movie we saw on TV last oh, week with um, the, the hawk and the, uh, the, the Falcon and the Snow? The Falcon and the Snow. Yeah. The biggest weakness in the script for me is when it starts to feel episodic. I wonder if Alan took short story ideas he had and put them into this film. It feels like we bounce around. There were actually more episodic adventures that were cut out of the finished film. Several actors like Elaine Strict film roles that never appeared in the finished film. But focusing on the small elements isn't really the point here. The point is scale. The point is all this stuff is supposed to wash over you and bury you in a wave. It all works together. From the high class fashion models to the basement fortune tellers. Hot young actors to TV priests to sports stars to book publishers to groupies who write like Chekhov. This is a story about scale. It reminds me of the best work of Robert Altman or Richard Linklater, both of whom love to attack a subject from many angles and many characters in films like Nashville. And there's more than a little of the dark humour of Altman's 1992 film The Player seeping into this film. So Brandon tells me you're his writer. Well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a writer. I write. I wrote some (laughs) film scripts. Really? Have you ever heard of Chekhov? I have. I write like him. You write like him. When it comes to fame, 
I don't disagree with Alan on the point he's trying to make. In 1998, the internet was pretty new, but the world of technology and globalization was changing anyway. The years before trending became a thing, the 90s saw the rise of this celebrity culture and a new level of being famous. Look at Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson or OJ Simpson, who are these new global superstars, and they came from all corners. Sports, movies, rock stars, and even politicians. Look at Bill Clinton playing saxophone on Arsenio Hall in 1992. Everyone is just a celebrity. What their actual day job was is secondary. It is worse now. Any idiot with a blue tick thinks that they are on the level as anyone else with a blue tick. Alan's vision of culture full of cheap celebrities has gotten worse, and this film seems less harsh every year. I think it's extremely interesting that Alan uses the anecdote about John Lennon saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus in this film. It's a passing conversation within a church group. It's not a funny scene or a clever one, it's just one that fits with his film. An incident came from a 1996 press conference when John Lennon stated, as a really dry matter of fact, that the Beatles had become more popular than Jesus, and more people had heard of them. It caused all manner of outrage as the extreme nutbags took offence, but that was a moment where popularity and celebrity began to be counted by the pound, and that a dark side of celebrity reared its head. It's right and proper that it's referenced in this film. Who would you say is more popular, the Pope or Elvis Presley? Well, I don't think there's any doubt. Elvis, Elvis, you think? Did you you agree with the Beatles years ago at the height of their fame that they were bigger stars than Jesus? The world population was much less than... I won't get too much into it from my personal point of view, but yeah, it's hard not to look at Instagram influencers and how every asshole is trying to get followers and not agree with Alan on this one. Help indeed. This is Alan's last film fully in black and white to date. He would investigate making later films like Small Time Crooks in black and white, but always ultimately decided against it. But he would film a few sequences in black and white in 2020's Rifkin's Festival. The problem with black and white was the cost. Around this time, Alan was shooting and editing on film, and there just weren't many production places that could develop black and white films left. Not only did everyone else go colour decades ago, everyone was going digital. And the decision to go black and white didn't exactly endear him to the studios or the people around him. His last film to be in black and white was Shadows and Fog, a massive flop that helped drive Orion Pictures out of business. There's no black and white films in the top 100 films of 1998, according to IMDb. Black and white on actual film stock was pretty much dead. I'm not sure what the black and white adds to the film. It immediately doubles down on the comparison to La Dolce Vita. Alan also does the thing where even the film studio logos before the film plays in black and white. Seen in a cinema, you would see no colour at all after the trailers. The thing it does do is make the film look gorgeous. Not that there isn't plenty of gorgeous colour films, but there are simply heaps of stunning shots of New York City here. All right, let's see. Oh, you see that guy? Mm-hmm. That's Papadakis, the director of the film we're going to see. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, he's very arty, pretentious, one of those assholes who shoots all his films in black and white. <laughs> the cinematographer for the film is Sven Nykvist, and it's his third film with Alan, not including the short segment for New York Stories. He replaced Carlo De Palma, who had health problems, and returned to Italy. Nykvist had cut his teeth working with Igmar Bergman in Sweden, and he was behind the camera for all his classics like The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. Crucially, a lot of those films were in black and white. 
Nyquist and Bergman between them conjured up many of cinema's most memorable images. The most beautiful sequence for me in the whole film is Lee and Nola's rendezvous at the Franklin Street subway. The establishing shot where we see the gorgeous subway entrance in its grand glory is lit very subtly, giving us lots of different textures. The brightest light comes from inside the subway itself. Then the scene goes from grand setting to close-ups on faces and a tightly framed kiss. It's almost like films of another era, where the close-up was the money shot, the most expensive and staged scene. It's why people went to the cinema, to see attractive, charismatic people up close at their most romantic and vulnerable. And that black and white image helps transport us to that different era. And that orchestral version of Slow Boat to China, performed by Jackie Gleason and his orchestra, also helps to set the mood. And uh, believe me, every guy I meet thinks he's the one who's gonna make me faithful. Well, so just be warned. Well, you know, I, I, you should know, I don't scare that easy, so. Well, I'm just letting you know this up front because you don't know me. I know you because I, I've written about you twice, twice. You were the obscure object of desire in books that I've written. And, you know, I mean, the, the books failed. It's my fault, not yours. But, you know, I just, I know you inside out. It's no, scary. Don't be misled. You didn't make me up. Yeah, well, I'm telling you that whatever restlessness you may have experienced, whatever moodiness and unpredictability you've broken hearts with, and, you know, you're a, baby, you're a heartbreaker. It's, it's, it's all over tonight. Where did you get that confidence? Nyquist surely earned his keep on this film. Just watching the film, you can see it as a complicated shoot. Scale is the story here, and Alan seems to throw scale in just for the sake of it. The high school reunion scene didn't have to be in such a big room with so many extras, but Alan wanted to show the scale. The same with the fashion show. Even the small party scenes are full of people, and I can't imagine the scenes were easy to set up. Alan certainly didn't cut corners here. He put in more corners than anyone would need. Alan also continues with his long scenes. When they're mixed with crowded rooms, it's a marvel. It's like watching a meticulously choreographed musical number. Take the art launch with Lee and the supermodel. The whole scene is a long take with camera moves, the right speakers, timed perfectly with jokes that land. It's very impressive. The black and white cinematography actually serves the purpose of making it simpler to control the colour scheme. I imagine costuming so many extras and dressing so many sets meant that having a tight colour palette would be hard. But you also don't have colour and the production design is much harder to set mood and feeling. There's also so many locations. It's not just a number of locations, but the breadth and style. We go from grungy fashion shows to posh hotels to Central Park to hip nightclubs. And each one is a massive amount of extras and huge sets. There's helicopter shots and huge establishing shots in each location filled with noise and people. I love the small detail of construction workers everywhere. That's New York, always work being done. It's a city where people are filming on the streets, paparazzi follow celebrities, and the sound of construction. In terms of painting a picture of New York, Alan does an incredible job here. You can hear New York. This is the last of four Woody Allen films in a row, which were set in contemporary New York, starting with Mighty Aphrodite in 1995. He usually likes to do something set out of the city or maybe in the past, but for this period in the 90s, he stayed with the time and the New York as it was. I feel like Alan's 90s work is where he best shows his love of New York better than any other period. Let's talk about Kenneth Branagh's performance. Branagh is definitely going for something very distinctive, and that thing is his take on a Woody Allen impersonation. There's just no two ways about it. Branagh is an incredible actor. He's also a very silly actor at times. He's very silly in the Harry Potter films. 
He's very silly as Poirot in Murder on the Orient Express. But in the late 90s, Branagh was not silly. At least he wasn't seen as silly. In the late 90s, Branagh was Shakespeare. He had just directed and starred in an acclaimed three-hour epic adaptation of Hamlet, having directed and starred in lots of Shakespeare in the years before. So for many people, this felt like a Shakespearean actor doing Woody Allen like Patrick Stewart as Alvy Singer. It's telling that Alan had also considered Hugh Grant for the role. Alan obviously wanted a comic performance, someone who could play that frantic, uncomfortable panic that Hugh Grant and Woody Allen does so well, but also handsome and probably looks better than Alan in a fast car and not unlikely to hang out with supermodels. So Branagh was cast against type. Branagh at the time was probably considered the most serious film actor there was at the time. Having seen lots of silly Branagh in the years since the film came out, it makes more sense to me. I can easily see past the performance now to see Lee. Yes, he could have played him as British. Yes, Branagh is definitely going for something. Regardless of whether it was right for the film, what he's doing is really hard. He delivers long, complicated monologues with a perfect style. It's a shame that so many reviewers couldn't get past Branagh's performance. Many of them talked about it right at the start. It was considered one of Alan's great casting blunders. Also, according to Alan, Branagh started doing his performance and the director just let him be. The two didn't discuss it. Alan could have asked Branagh to tone it down. Alan has asked many actors over the years specifically not to sound like him or his persona. Why didn't he do it here? As much as the performance has grown on me, it absolutely stands in the way of this film. It's just so showy that it can't be ignored. You are constantly reminded of it because Branagh totally commits to it. Branagh goes against what Alan usually does with casting leads, which is to cast a naturalistic actor, someone who looks like they are playing themselves. People don't normally do accents in Alan's films. But we know this is a British actor putting on a shtick. If only Branagh played him as British. Or imagine what someone like John Cusack or Owen Wilson or Edward Norton or someone more naturalistic could have done with this role. A great but flawed performance. <laughs> My book is about the, the values of a society gone astray, a culture badly in need of help, a country that gives a 20-year-old kid who can barely read or write a $100 million contract to play basketball, you know, and wear a, a, a brutal murder trial or who, who's sleeping with the president. It's, it's all show business. Everything is show business. And look, it doesn't help that Branagh is up against a powerhouse actor like Judy Davis. She's an absolute natural, and you don't feel her acting. She goes from manic, like she is in her early breakup scene, to graceful, like she is at the end. She is just able to call on a hurricane of emotion at will. She's got the raw acting power of Marlon Brando, but more than that, she uses it for humour. Let's see Brando pull off the blowjob scene from this film. I think she's brilliant and I understand why Woody Allen loves her. The two have a funny relationship. Davis has worked on five Woody Allen films and has said she's never spoken to Allen. Allen, for his part, says he is scared of her and afraid to tell her anything because she is so intense. Look, maybe that's true. I think maybe both of them are having a bit of fun exaggerating each other's stereotype to the press. Either way, Alan's multi-layered lead characters suit her, and that's for sure. You can't beat her performance in Husbands and Wives, but this is her second best work with Alan. I left him standing at the church with all his family and friends. Oh my God, oh, what have I done? I don't know. Well, if you are not sure that you love him, then it's no, a mistake no, no, to I, I, I am sure, he's wonderful. Okay, so then I don't understand. Well, I, I just feel guilty because I've had such good luck you know mm -hmm. I mean everybody I know always has so many problems they're so lonely it's so needy I just had this great guy fall in my lap <sighs> I, I still don't think no, no, his name's <laughs> Tony and I told him you're so terrific I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop you know some terrible part of him that will ruin things but there is no other shoe well you provided that me yeah 
I mean, he's a wonderful guy, but you screw things up. Why? Well, you said it yourself. It, it, it's like guilt. I mean, see, you, you don't need a fortune teller. You need a shrink. Most of the rest of the cast are cartoons. Simple characters for Lee or Robin to bounce off and then land at a point. Even Joe Mantegna's Tony, who probably gets the third most screen time, is nothing but a nice guy. He doesn't change or anything, so all the credit to Mantegna for making the role work. Some of the minor roles really chew the screen. Leonardo DiCaprio is perfect in his small role. He brings his intensity, but he looks like he's having fun too, cutting loose. Winona Ryder does little more than look aloof and beautiful, but if that's what you want, she's pretty good at it. Charlene Theron's hurricane of a character is probably the most memorable of all the secondary cast. In a strange parallel to the theme of fame, there were lots of famous people offered or considered for roles. Kim Basinger was offered the Melanie Griffith role. Kate Winslet and Drew Barrymore were both considered for the role played by Renona Ryder. Hugh Grant, like I said, could have been Kenneth Branagh. And Alan wanted director Sidney Lumet to play the director in the film, ultimately played by Greg Matola who would go on to be a features director himself. There are dozens more. At this time, Alan was working with huge stars and everyone wanted to be in his films. It was also easy. There's no rehearsal and apart from the leads, it would only take a few days. It also provides a bit of meta-commentary that so many actors who could lead their own films get minor speaking parts here. Yet those big names. And let's not forget, this is post-Titanic DiCaprio and Winona Ryder in her 90s prime. Couldn't get this film to be a smash hit. Oh, I hate this director, Papadakis. You know, it's one cliche after another. And, you know, when you see the scripts that get made, it, I just find it so depressing, you know? Below that, the film is just filled with cameos. Dozens of people who worked with Alan in his recent films returned for this. People like Dan Moran, Tony Sirico, Douglas McGrath, and many others who worked with Alan many times. It's a little like Radio Days, when Alan just got great actors from his last few films and put them in one big film, making it feel a little like a TV series finale. Then there's actors who passed through that later became famous. There's like 50 of them, from Sam Rockwell to Jeffrey Wright to J.K. Simmons and more. This is a really great film for Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. The other cameo really worth noting is Donald Trump. I know he's become a lightning rod of a figure now, but back in 1998, he was this rich weirdo. He was so rich that he owned casinos, and when Alan needed a casino to shoot in, he reached out to Trump's people. Trump allowed Alan to shoot in one of his Atlantic City casinos, and Alan offered to give him a small part as himself in the film. It kind of makes sense to have Trump, because one of the things that Alan was trying to say was that being a celebrity was suddenly the end of the line for everyone. Politicians, actors, writers, random members of the public, anyone could become a celebrity. And people dig into everyone's private lives and nothing is off limits. And if there's anything that Alan predicted with this, it's the rise of Donald Trump. The line between a businessman and a president would be erased as both were just the same celebrity. Look who's here, Donald Trump. What are you working on, Donald? Well, I'm working on buying St. Patrick's Cathedral, maybe doing a little rip-down job and putting up a very, very tall and beautiful building. Well, that's just wonderful. This was Alan's last film with Susan E. Morse. Alan called her Susie, and she had worked with Alan as an editorial assistant on Annie Hall and became the main editor from Manhattan, editing every film since. She worked on 24 of Alan's projects. She was one of a few long-time Alan collaborators who were let go of around this time. Sweetland Films, who Alan made films for, wanted Alan to cut back on his costs. Some of his regulars who were paid to be available at Alan's whim were taken off the books. Like the cinematographer Sven Nykvist, Susan E. Morse really earned her fee on this film. It was a long shoot with lots of footage and many scenes were cut. But more than most Woody Allen films in a while, 
Alan found this film in the edit. Things were moved around and removed until the story made sense and Morse drove that. It might be that Alan's writing has changed, but the Morse years had more films where Alan changed everything in the edit. In the decades that followed, almost none of his films were found in the edit. I'm not sure what that says, other than things were not the same after Susan E. Morse. Romaine Green, who had also done hair on just about every Woody Allen film since Annie Hall, some 20 plus films, would also leave after this film. Juliet Taylor on casting, however, would make the cut, as did longtime production designer Santo Loquasto. Those two were pretty much the only two to hold on from Allen's longtime crew. Richard Brick remains as producer, his second film with Allen after the departure of longtime producer Robert Greenhut. He wouldn't last for much longer and neither would Sweetland Films. You ought to be in pictures Gee, you're beautiful to see the look and the story of this film is so stylized, but one aspect that lacks character for me is the music. It's one of the problems with Alan's films of this period. In the 90s, Alan's stories were mainly set in modern New York, and he kept using the same musical character. It was a hodgepodge of old jazz from different eras. There isn't much of a score holding the film together, although there's a couple of key musical moments. Nola and Lee's meeting is lovingly soundtracked by On a Slow Boat to China, as I mentioned. It's a lovely romantic song that Alan had used previously in September. The high school scene features the impossible dream, but other than that, this film is simply not about music. The opening credits song is another one that is firmly on the nose. The song is You Ought to Be in Pictures by Little Jack Little. It's one of Little's most popular tracks and was released in 1934, and I reckon Alan picked it out for the name and never thought about it again. Celebrity was released in the US on the 20th of November 1998 and played Venice and New York film festivals a couple of months earlier in September. It was released by Sweetland Films, their fifth film with Alan. It wasn't a disaster, but it didn't exactly burn up the box office either. It made 5.1 million in the US, half of what Deconstructing Harry made, and around half of what most of his other films did in the 90s. At the time of release, this was his fourth lowest grossing film ever, only beaten out by Alan's most memorable flops like Shadows and Fog, Another Woman and September. I think in the end it didn't really make an impact. It just got lost, just another Woody Allen film as he rolled them out in the 90s. The black and white, the funny Kenneth Branagh performance and the bitter themes all added up to a film with limited appeal. It didn't really threaten the award season. And it didn't help that Alan was now very much an independent filmmaker, but had a lot of competition. The early 90s, Alan was the experienced hand in a sea of up-and-comers. By 1998, those up-and-comers were superstars. Wes Anderson's Rushmore, the Coen brothers' Big Lebowski, Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Celebrity just didn't make it through the noise. It was such a golden era for American independent cinema. It's a shame because I love this film. It's so darkly funny, yet has something to say. And Alan is taking a swing at fame with a big bat. It's also so cinematic. All those wide shots and huge scenes of extras and exotic locations. Woody Allen's New York is black and white and cinematic. 
Alan has never been this purely ambitious again, and he would not have a film with anywhere close to this many speaking parts again, or make a film with so many locations, sets, or extras. It's no surprise that Alan would pivot to one of his smallest films ever after this, 1999's Sweet and Lowdown. He would go on to make little comedies that could have really been TV movies, and he would make intense personal dramas. It's not really until 2012's To Run With Love, almost 15 years later, that he would film in such huge outdoor set pieces again. The film before this one, 1997's Deconstructing Harry, gets the reputation of being Alan at his angriest. That's because Alan actually appears in that film and swears and you can see him being angry. He doesn't appear in Celebrity, but the point he's making is wider and more directed. He doesn't hate himself in this one, he hates you and it's way angrier and nastier than Deconstructing Harry or any of Alan's films. But this film kind of lives in the shadow of Deconstructing Harry. I think the public just thought it was Alan continuing to be angry again. But it was more than that. And this film is just a feast for the eyes. It's funny as all get out. It's deep and thoughtful. There's actors who are at the top of their game. Yes, there's flaws. But it's a Woody Allen film and a great one at that. And that, at least, is worth celebrating. Oh, and getting out of the elevator, I see there's a famous critic. Him, I recognize. Oh, you used to hate every movie. Then he married a young, big-bosomed woman, and now he loves every movie. Some fun facts about Celebrity. This was Sven Nykvist's last film with Alan. He was getting too old and started to go blind. This was apparently inspiration for the blind director in Hollywood Ending. He also didn't understand English, and Stig Bjorkman, who wrote a wonderful book called Woody Allen on Woody Allen, translated the script into Swedish. Celebrity didn't set the box office alight, but that's okay. Alan actually had another box office hit that year when he starred in the animated film Ants. And Ants has made more money than any of Woody Allen's own films. You know, my, my mother never had time for me. You know, when, when, you, when you're the middle child in a family of five million, you don't get any attention. I mean, how is it possible? And, and I've always had these, these abandonment issues which plagued me. My father was, was basically a drone, like I've said, and, you know, the guy flew away when I was just a lava. I have no idea why, but there was an actual single released for the film. It seems like it was France only, but the record company there made promo CDs of the credit song You Ought to Be in Pictures by Little Jack Little. I'm not sure why. Was it really going to garner any radio airplay? I know France loves Woody Allen, but come on. And finally, shortly after Allen rapped on this film and before it came out, he married Sunyi Previn in Venice. Your voice would thrill the nation Your looks would be adored You'd be a big sensation With wealth and fame Your reward Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of Celebrity? Was it too sprawling? Was the humour too black? I want to know. Send me an email at woodyallenpages at gmail.com As usual, if you get to this point, there are lots of ways of supporting us. There's Patreon, and there's also a tip service called Buy Me A Coffee. You can find links to both in the description. You can buy my books on Woody Allen. Again, links in the description. Or posters and merch of the podcast artwork. Otherwise, the important thing is just to spread the word. Tell a friend about this podcast, a friend that you think loves film. Follow me on social media everywhere at Woody Allen Pages. It's where I announce what will be on the next episode. Speaking of which, next week, we look at the film that Allen says has the lead character that is most like him. Thanks for listening. Would you sign this? I use your exercise tape. You do? So do I. But I exercise to it. So we should...